they said, well, what about excellence? And I said, well, at a certain point, you have excellence. And then you have to start thinking about other kinds of goals, you know, which also contribute to other kinds of excellence, which goes back to your point in a way about what constitutes excellence. Is it just the so-called best composers? Well, I don't know who those people are. But I do know that the program's a lot more excellence now that it's 50% women and a fair number of uh, people of non-white origin. It's a lot better program in terms of what happens around the table, the kinds of discourses and ideas that are, that are put into the mix, the kinds of experiences we all have. So I'm very happy about it. But um, it took a while to convince people. Actually, we had to have a couple of retirements for it to happen. Hello, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Boyales Samtala. In this podcast, we're diving into the archives of conversations with composers, artists, and musicians previously held at Borealis, a festival for experimental music here in Bergen, Norway. My name is Wilde Tuv, and each month for this podcast, I'm finding a new conversation to share with you. In this episode, we're meeting composer George Lewis. From the 1970s, as a member of the influential AACM in Chicago, through his pioneering work with electronic music, to his large body of notated and improvised music, teaching and writing as a professor of American music at Columbia University, George Lewis is one of the leading voices of modern composition. Professor Lewis brought four pieces to Borealis this year, including the world premiere of Kulokar, commissioned by Borealis and Nimusik Norway. The pieces were performed by Elaine Michener and the Norwegian Naval Forces Band in the Natural History Museum in Bergen on the opening night of the festival back in March 2020. The following day, he joined artistic director Peter Meanwell in a conversation where they touched upon themes such as canonization and how classical music and composition has been defined to only celebrate certain groups of people and thus exclude others. So, wherever you are, Enjoy the conversation. George asked that we start this conversation with a quote from a lecture by Sir Donald Francis Tovey from mm. 1938, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Tovey was a British musicologist whose writings on music were published uh, widely. And his lecture, The Mainstream of Music, was his attempt to create an overview of what he considered the major developments of uh, Western classical music up to date in 1938. Uh, he got as far as Wagner and then basically admitted defeat. Uh, he wrote, I can go no further. At the present day, all musicians feel more or less at sea, and not all of us are good sailors. Yeah, he called it the ocean of Wagner. The ocean of Wagner. Yeah, if you're at sea in the ocean of Wagner. It's very tough. What, what, what was it that defeated even. him? Was it only Wagner that was defeating Tovey? Well, if you're looking at things in a very linear way like that, I mean, if you look at the, at the whole essay, it's a mainstream where he uses the water metaphor throughout. So in some places, the stream flows very quickly. It, it goes through rapids. And in some places, it's choked with weeds. I don't remember. what That's the music he didn't like very much. It was choked with weeds. So, so I mean, and finally, the, the ocean of Wagner, everyone's kind of swimming around in it. And what do they do? This is 1938. Mm. And uh, what you also got is that that sort of sense of interregnum, which I like about it very much, uh, was predicted by him and comes like 
maybe 30 years before Leonard Meyer, the musicologist of a later generation, says a similar thing about what he calls fluctuating stasis. And then you going further, you're talking about the absence of stable canon, like the canon that was so confidently predicted. Or, or let's see another musicologist, Robert Morgan, was trying to figure out how to deal with multiculturalism within classical music. And so his idea was, well, let's just have a lot of canons, and you don't bother my canon, I won't bother yours. Mm. You know, multiple uh, non-intersecting canons, which is absurd, right? But I mean, it's a great, <laughs> great idea in principle. It didn't work any better in running nations than it did in running canons in music. So, but it was a, it was a hope that somehow the canons would not infect each other. But or somehow they would they would be allowed to proceed on their course, uh, but that did really work out because we're we're human beings and so we listen to each other and we borrow and we steal and we interact and we intersect and we cross pollinate and do all these wonderful things. So, so I think that's the um, the, but in, what I find is that, an interregnum. They were still talking confidently about the international style in the fifties, right? So, right. So, but that seemed to be just one area of interest. So what we're seeing now, I think, in music, which is a great thing, is that there is a one overarching point of view which everyone has to uh, swear fealty to, and that's actually pretty good. Because, I mean, Toby had this thing in his essay where he talks about, he said, and I quote here, there are musicians in Europe and America who tell us that we have no right to talk of the mainstream of music until we've incorporated the, excuse the, the title, the Siamese and hundreds of other oriental scales into our own century, right? But then he goes mm. on to say there's doubtless a mainstream of Siamese music for the Siamese. Uh, it's odd. That reminded me when I read that again this morning. It was a great quote you pulled out. What it reminded me of was... Uh, uh, a statement by Saul Bellow. Again, this is about the problems, perceived issues with multiculturalism, uh, which is actually surprising that this was brought up by Tovey in 1938, probably in a spirit of liberalism, which is to say we don't want to impose our culture on others, despite the fact that was already happening. But uh, at some point, the famous statement by Bellow is, I would like, I would love to read the uh, the Tolstoy of the Zulus or the Proust of the Papuans. And so, and he's talking about, it's interesting, that statement was made about the Tolstoy of the Zulus at the time you have Wally Soyinka, another Nobel Prize winner as an active writer. You had Chinua Achebe, you had uh, uh, Ngugi Wachiongo, all these people, African writers who he apparently knew nothing about, but could confidently do that, but from a, a privileged space of whiteness, could make that kind of statement. And so we see it often that, um, in, in this kind of attempt to um, be uh, worldly or be cosmopolitan, uh, the idea is that, you know, it's not about national traditions anymore. If we're really at sea, we're really at sea in terms of what constitutes who is a subject in the discourse. So what he's saying is that Siamese music, as they called it then, is not a subject in the Western music discourse, and why not? So uh, that would be something where we could come across that. I mean, uh, let's say the Siamese, quote unquote, composers, which maybe he didn't know existed, and the idea of certain kinds of scales or things, he's already framing it as being outside of the system. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, no one was doing any work like that. No. Although, if you look at someone, let's say, like uh, uh, Pak Chokro, uh, 
the Indonesian composer who you know made hundreds of works for gamelan, and they're quite quite complicated and amazing, although not notated in the traditional way. But there's no reason not to look at someone like that as being a composer. So, so it's at a certain point, if we want to look at what composition is, we have to sort of drop a lot of the the barriers which are being put up now. Mm. Allow, allow different kinds of traditions, methodologies into the mix. Right, because then maybe we should just define that here we're talking about notes on paper, right? We discussed this yesterday, this idea of, of note, trying to have, think about a medium well, well, of delivery well, of music. Well, Is that that's what true. We're I kind of rethought that a little bit because okay. now I'm thinking right now. I mean, you know... Um, I've had conversations with a number of improvisers who say, well, what we do is composing, right? I say, well, yes, it is. And, um, but there is a composing as making music, in other words, creating music. Mm. Composing, that's great. And there's composing as a term of art designating a particular range of methodologies, which seems, if not, circums it's not, if not, not unlimited, sort of circumscribed. And majoritarian being the creation of music on notes, with notes on paper, or as uh, Carl Dahlhaus put it, and I think a not famous essay, which, which I found some sustenance from, he was trying to talk about, in this essay, Carl Dahlhaus, the German musicologist, was talking about improvisation. He says, was heißt Improvisation? So that was his, his theory. What is improvisation? But he actually used improvisation as a foil for actually trying to do, define composition. And so his basic theme was that composition was something in which the, it was the, the essential part of what manifests itself in the consciousness of the listener is notated. That's it. That's a pretty strong definition. And so if that's still, as I see it, majoritarian, so that's a medium. It's like saying, well, you know, I mean, the, the, art, of art, the art of painting is what you do with a brush and a canvas. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, that's great. So it's not to say there are many, not, not many different kinds of art, okay? So you could have, you know, you could have Jackson Pollock doing things. That's considered painting, too. So, but this majoritarian notion of how composition takes place and what the medium is and what the materials are and what the methodologies are, um, uh, within that definition, that's going on all over the world. All kinds of people are doing that. And so my interest is in making that clear that uh, many people from many different national and cultural traditions and ethno-racial uh, uh, situations and are doing things this way. So we don't want to get into a situation where composition, the, the methodology or the act of composition or the, um, the medium of composition becomes an implicit or explicit celebration of particular diaspora, in this case, the European diaspora, we don't, or various national diasporas within the ethno-racial space of whiteness. So we don't really need composition to be uh, stuck in that place because that's what, that's what prevents that from becoming a real, a true world music instead of an imposed tradition which, we, which various countries pay, pay uh, homage to or swear fealty to. Because that was certainly where we were in Tovey's time. At least there was not a recognition outside of the West Berlin or the white diaspora um, of those other composed musics, would you say? And that was 1938. Are, are we in a different place now? Uh, not really, no. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I 
published an article recently on uh, this. This is something that was, uh, I was took part in a, at Darmstadt uh, Ferenkurse, which I had never been to uh, for 2018. And I'm, you know, I'm 68 now. And um, <laughs> so anyway, um, I took part in a year-long uh, initiative to try to rethink curation in contemporary music. And there were four curators of, uh, of European and Scandinavian festivals, Lars Peterhagen, of the Ultima, who used to be previous director of the Ultima. Mm, and, also, yeah. uh, and we had also uh, Björn Gottstein of, of Dona Eschingen, uh, Thomas Schaefer, the Darmstadt Ferienkurse, and um, the last one was, let me think, oh yeah, uh, Berno Otto Polzer of Meritzmusik. Uh, so three of the biggest German so really classical, big mu classical, classical music, music festivals. New classical music festivals, and, and, and one that describes itself as a, as a festival for time questions. <laughs> that's Berno's, so that's, that's Meritzmusik. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that, yeah. And so, now, the idea was that um, I... They did, into 2016 Darmstadt, I'm just telling you this, they, uh, two wonderful people, uh, uh, Georgina Born, the uh, sociologist and musicologist who I've worked with in various capacities, and uh, Ashley Fury, the composer and multimedia artist, uh, developed uh, an initiative in which they examined the archive of Darmstadt with particular reference to the gender of the composers who were being commissioned or being hired as tutors and found unremarkably very low numbers of women, around about 7% of the total of 4,750 compositions were made by women. And then just for anyone who doesn't know, Darmstadt is this summer school for new music and festival that's happened it's every year since this, every two years since the Second World War. Since, yeah, and it was started actually by the American uh, military government. It was? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> just to, you know, aside there. I mean, there was a lot of that. That's a whole other topic. You don't yeah. want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, the CIA well, and the Cultural the CIA, Cold yeah. War and stuff like that, you know. It's all there if you want to look at it. And it's, you know, it's pretty well documented. Um, uh, but anyway, to, to the, of these, I thought, well, and no one has really done this for, like, uh, race and ethnicity. In fact, I think in a number of uh, countries in Europe, uh, the uh, collection of, of race and ethnicity statistics is prohibited. I think France is one of those countries. Uh, Germany is another. I don't know what's happening here. But uh, what, the, what that does is it allows discriminations of various kinds to go unrecorded and under the radar. It was never a, it was never a law against that in the U.S. They just didn't do it because they didn't want people to find out. So when they finally decided to do it, they found all kinds of things uh, scurrying under the rug that were very unsavory in terms of the absence of certain kinds of people on a very consistent basis, usually along racial and gender lines. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in looking at the informally, because I didn't have access to the Darmstadt uh, archives, but there was a wonderful Brazilian researcher who had just finished his doctoral degree, and he sent me a copy of his dissertation, and he had identified, uh, he was trying to work on African composers who had been commissioned, uh, had pieces at Darmstadt. He found one, who happened, who happened to be my old student, uh, Andile Kumalo. <laughs> and, and this uh, is one out of 75? One yeah. out of 4,750. 4,750. So that's okay. point. And there's another one. There's Alvin Singleton, the African-American composer, who won the Chronic Standard Prize, which is the big prize for that uh, festival. It was never programmed again, despite the fact that he lived in Graz. And he's, 
you know, spoke fluent German and all that. So what, what ends up happening, that, so, so that's like not 7%, but it's 0.04% of the total. So that's an obvious huge hole there. And so you wonder, what's driving that absence? Mm. So they have to think about that. So when I say that things are still going on that way, there's, there's strong evidence for that. And there are other festivals in, that, uh, have, that tout themselves as international festivals in that country. They've never... Uh, had an Afro-Diasporic person. And I'm just concentrating on that one hole. I'm sure there are lots of others. So I don't need to account for every hole any more than Tovey needs to account for all the different ethnicities that are not included. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a way of deflecting uh, the, obvious, the, the, the problems with the situation by claiming, well, look at all these other people. Are you talking about this one? So what about this one and this one and this one? And pretty soon, everything drowns in a kind of a flattening, and you forget the original point, which is we need to address the absences rather than trying to count the number of absences. Mm. You know, when you find it, you address it. So we, what we did, just to follow this up, um, as a kind of um, what I did, and this is in the oncurating.org article, is I made a, a four-hour listening room, and the code name for this listening room was the Darmstadt that might have been. Because, you know, these, these, these contemporary music festivals of Zeitgenistische Musik, and, you know, and they, they have certain aesthetic predilections or certain directions. So not everyone, like, uh, I mean, they weren't going to program, I don't know, Florence Price. That wasn't going to happen. But they could have programmed Ollie Wilson. They could have programmed uh, Hale Smith. They could have programmed Julia Perry. They could have programmed Anthony Braxton. They could have programmed lots of people, but they never did. So I just made a list of about 40 of these people and put about 10 minutes of each of their music on a four-hour loop. And people could just go in and listen whenever they wanted. And uh, it was just like Afro-Diasporic composers active since 1950, let's say. That's in, that's a good starting point because that's when Darmstadt basically starts. So these are all the people, you could call it a Salon des Refusés or you could call it uh, just a, <laughs> a big hole. But anyway, you drive, it's, the effect was in my terms to drive a sound truck through that hole. And so the other problem is as another one of my wonderful former students, uh, Dana Reason, uh, wrote in, uh, in looking at the absences of women on uh, festivals of improvised music, she called that the myth of absence, which is to say, well, we don't have any women because there aren't any. Mm. And so, uh, so it's the same thing with these people. I noticed that uh, you started to find that, well, I mean, who do we get for these things? And I was, I, one of the things that I recount in uh, a conversation with an old friend who was trying to collaborate with uh, an, an American uh, um, uh, presenter of African-American music, and they were trying to prevent. A, they were trying to prevent a, present a festival in Germany, and uh, but the the some of the German presenters balked at the idea that at least one concert was going to have all notated contemporary music by African Americans. They said, well, and so I said, well, what's, what was the problem with that? And they said, well, you know, there was a, there was a question of like you know people started talking about whether there might be a question about quality. I said, well, you got the scores. Look at them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it wasn't about quality, right? right? So, so you have to think about why those things exist. And so, I th the old answer, like, "Oh, everybody's racist," that is not working. 
as an idea. And so I looked for something else because you know racism, people don't get it. It's like, oh, it's individual. It's, uh, you know, it's a, I, I don't have bad feelings toward anyone. It's not the point. We're not talking, we're talking, not, not talking about individual racism or institutional racism. I'm talking about subjectivation. In other words, who is considered a subject and who is not considered an object, basically. Okay, a non-subject, someone who we don't have to take into account when we address uh, situations. So if we're looking at an entire set of people who are not subjects in the contemporary music discourse, hmm. and so then we can look at the reasons why. We don't, but, to, but to just chalk it up to individuals doing malevolent things because of being mean and nasty, you know, it's not a good explanation. It's easily refuted, and it's, you know, it's... it's, it's it, it, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you can see right away, just as in the, in the case of gender, like, um, well, suddenly women who, 7% of the commissions, you know, that's a subjectivation problem to me. You know, women, women and issues regarding women, ideas about women, histories of women are, not, are also subjects and are not part of the discourse. So when you look at it in that way, it becomes clear. And so you can, we can look at other ethnicities, situations, subjects. I mean, you were talking, for example, about, um, what was it, Norwegian composers and access? Is that what you were talking Remember we were talking about that yesterday? Something about certain yeah. kinds of, you know, what used to be called cultural appropriation or whatever they call it, you know? Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, should we get to that after we Whatever, talk about whatever you else. like, sure, sure. Yeah, no, I want to come back to that. But I'd like to get that because I was we'll thinking about that there. again today. But I, just, I wanted to just address, because you mentioned people like Ollie Wilson, Florence Price, uh, Anthony Braxton, all of these eminent African-American classical composers of the last... Oh, but they don't all have the... But I'm just saying, I was saying that in terms of... I was putting, let's say... I mean, there are, there's a strong, very strong tradition of tonal composers in African-American music. Then and now, uh, but you know these festivals in Europe are—they don't feature much of that. But do it's not—it's not a big situation for them. But if we're not—if say we're discounting racism as just the easy answer for for absence, yeah. when we look at that absence, the 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 kind of hole you're driving your sound truck through, do you do you see anything in in the experiences of these composers that that we learn from to to redress that access? Is it about well, you the won't canon? Know. Well, Is you won't know until you hear them. <laughs> sure. You won't know until you hear them. That's the issue. We won't know what's there until we hear them. And there's no prima facie reason based on aesthetics why these people would not be heard. So, so we have to kind of think, well, what is the reason? Mm. And so rather than forcing people into, and this is a strategic matter, rather than forcing people into uncomfortable stances of denial, all you have to say is, Okay, well, next year let's do this. And uh, so, for example, next uh, in this, that was last year, and uh, in 2020, that was in 2018. In 2020, I have a project going with Ensemble Modern in Frankfurt. We're going to have a two-day conference on what they're calling Afro-modernism. If I find a better name, I'll come up with it. And we're, um, <laughs> but but right now it's a good one. That means we can't because I'm trying to figure it out because basically. I'm using the term diaspora in a different sense than how it's usually used. And you know, diaspora is kind of starting from a base and moving out where it's dispersal, you see. But I'm looking at a situation in which, given the movement of people across borders that's happening now, we're all in a diasporan situation. 
even people who claim fealty to a given place and time and country. Um, so that to speak of an Afro diaspora is to speak of something which is, you can't say they all came out of Africa like Eve. It's more that people are all over the place. And rather than having to account for origins, we look at instantiations of Africanity. Instantiations? Uh, yeah, what like situations. Oh, yeah, okay. Situations. What happens in different countries regarding that, or regarding other ethnic, ethnic stances or whatever. So you might look at what's happening in, in South America or, or in... In, in Cuba or in Argentina or in the Caribbean or in the US or in, or in various parts of Africa. Um, I mean, African music, Africa is, a, is not a country, it's a huge continent. So there's all kinds of movement across borders over centuries and centuries. So, so there's already a diaspora in place there. So uh, speaking of an Afro diaspora, which doesn't necessarily include just black people either. So we have to think of it in much broader terms, but one thing I was able to identify from this uh, one Brazilian researcher's work, by the way, was that a white uh, South African composer were treated very differently and had greater access than, than black South Africans. So, um, so that in a sense, whiteness was considered more of a predictor of success. You know, the absence of whiteness was, was considered a predictor of absence. Uh, so that was so that's that was a very interesting thing, but we might have gone off a bit. So let we me might have gone off a bit, but I think that that's well, that's one thing that we've talked about a lot. I think is in looking at how we find a way forward from these absences is this idea of creolness or creolite, and maybe yeah. we can just just kind of say what that is before we talk about it. Well, assumption. I stole it from the. Um, you know, from the from the Caribbean theorists, uh, not so much Glissant, Edouard Glissant, but the people who came after him, his uh, students, uh, you know, Patrick Chamoiseau and Raphael Confiant in particular, and they have another related term called diversalité. You know, if you were, you know, which a French anthropologist uh, Alexandre Pierpont introduced me to, and um, which is different from what they're calling diversity discourse, uh, which is sort of I find that I'm a little suspicious of diversity discourse these days. However, um, Creolite, and it was interesting to me that my Columbia colleague, the post-colonial theorist Gayatri Spivak, took up Creolite, or took this up as a means of really thinking hard about, well, about genre. Genre in music, think about it as being the root, the Latin root, I guess, gen, genetic, okay? Somehow there's something fixed about it, you know, genres. It's, it's hard to find people who are, you know, multi-genre, although that's taken, that's taken uh, for granted by many people. But I was talking yesterday, I was joking about the former jazz musician, right, which seemed to be an exclusively white concept, as is black Black musicians could never be former jazz musicians because <laughs> genre, because genre is considered to be fixed and genetically typed. So we're talking about genre, you know, genetic and all that. So um, when we are trying to think about that, that comes down to kinship discourse and genre. Genre is often connected connected with kinship. Kinships connected with race, all kinds of things connected with that. So genre and race have always been pretty closely bound. Um, so that in order to break that up, uh, the idea that Spivak's idea was to supplant kinship discourse by looking at um, looking at the concept of mixtures. And she applies she applies Kurilite not to the Caribbean but to the the Bengali language. Yeah. That's her. Uh, that's her starting point for looking at Bengali as a Creole 
just like Provençal is a Creole, essentially for her. Because because Creolita came out of this this idea in the Caribbean in Martinique and Guadeloupe, or these writers you mentioned, yeah. um, was acknowledges the potential of this mixing of cultures and ethnicities. So they, uh, Barnabé Chamoiseau and Confiant wrote, neither Europeans nor Africans nor Asians, we proclaim ourselves Creoles. So it's a cultural position of saying this is our new identity. But what you brought out in our our pre-conversation was that it was is that Glissant said it was a method. Right. Which I like the idea of a method, but what's a... It's not what identity, is, it's a way of being. Well, it's, well it's a method for reconstructing identity. <laughs> you know, I, that's how I would look at it. In other words, for, in other words if, we, if, if, if we're all, every one of us in this room, is pro, if we all proclaim ourselves Creoles, that means we all have a means for using that concept of mixture to reconstruct ourselves beyond sort of narrow lines of ethnicity, race, uh, and, and nationality. So if we can do that, then that means that our histories change too. And that our histories start to involve areas that we normally didn't consider to be part of who we were. So that, and that's an ongoing process. As you said, I think the, Gleason, the rest of the Gleason quotes, there's no end to it. Mm. You know, it's, and that's why they say in the same quote, Confion and, and Chamazo say, to present creative depth. So it's, it's a creative process, this sort of creolization. It's not something where, oh, we're creoles today and we can be non-creoles tomorrow. No, it's sort of like we, we're continually reconstructing that, that, that identity to become mobile, to become uh, potentially non-open-ended. I mean, to become open-ended. Because actually, one of the, you mentioned canon before, but one of the things with absence is the canon, the Western classical music canon excludes or... It sees the absence of many people. So if we, as you're saying, if we sit and proclaim ourselves Creoles in this room, then our canons increase, then the number of identities that we can draw on and see as part of our own history increases, right? Well, that's right. And now the problem with that is, this, this gets back to the question about these people wanting to quote, what was the phrase you used, to have access to different cultures or whatever? I, I mean... So in a, let's put it locally in this Norwegian context. So okay, so I don't know anything about the Norwegian context, but maybe okay. you do, I think so. I mean some, but you know, I wondered then, because we talk about Creolite, it comes out of this a specific context in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. uh, Derek Walcott called it the shipwreck of, shipwreck of fragments, Right? Mm -hmm. So we can see the mixing of all these parts of around the world of these ideas in the Caribbean quite easily. Yeah. I think in Norway, we sit here on the edge of Scandinavia, historically colonization of the Sami lands in the north, but, uh, and obviously some Viking histories and things going on here. But how do we apply the creolite, the creolness, to say you're a composer living in Norway who says, OK, now I'm a creole. Can I, use, can I pick a mix from West African? Histories. Can I pick a mix from here? What's my, what's my hmm. potential now to embrace this new Creole well, I, identity? I don't know enough about what's going on here, but what I'm hearing from visiting Norway a few times more than I have is that there seems to be an increasing discourse around immigration. Hmm. And uh, there seems to be increasing reality of immigration, and people are on various sides of that. And so that means that new religions, new cultural practices are contested, and people have to challenge their own assumptions about what the center of the discourse is. Now, if we're looking of, of, the, of the cultural discourse is. So, for example, if we're looking at the situation, 
the old view of classical music in which classical music goes to some country, uh, takes over the high culture, and makes everyone swear fealty to it. I mean, that sounds like you know conquerors, you know, coming in conquistadors, you know, um, and everyone starts to swear fealty to that. Uh, that's that's a model that instead of listening and saying, well, what kinds of uh, new music can come out of the the hybridity of that? And that's not such a that's not such a strange concept. I mean, um, uh, think about. A hundred years ago, okay, um, you know, there's the famous story that I, you know I got in. I got in. Betty Freeman, the philanthropist, took me over to Nicholas Slonimsky's house. And okay. That was pretty cool. So I got to meet him. He's 96 years old. He's living in L.A. He comes in. And he says, he says, so George, um, you know who George Bridgetower is? I said. Yeah, I said, well, you know, Nicholas, I mean, if you're a black composer, you know who George Bridgetower is. But I want to hear your story, because you know it's going to be a much cooler story, right? So <laughs> and Nicholas, you know, he's full of great stories, right? Lexicon of musical invective, all these things. So, so his story was, and it's, it's been sort of, uh, you know, you can look at Thayer's Life of Beethoven and others. It's pretty well documented. Uh, George Bridgetower was probably the greatest violinist, or one of the greatest violinists of the age of which, personal friend of Beethoven around that time. Beethoven. They're hanging out. He says, look, I want to write a piece for you. You're a great violin player. I want to write a piece for you. So he says, great. So, and he's an Afro-British guy, right? He's somehow Afro-British-Polish. That's his kind of you know, heritage. So anyway, Beethoven writes the piece for him. And the dedication, we could have put that on the screen. I hadn't thought about that. See, it's a thing about that. But oh, yeah. the, the dedication, as you can find online, says, Sonata Mulatica. <laughs> Per un gran pazzo, a crazy guy, <laughs> you know. He's a sonata mulatica per il, per il, il violinist and composer Bridgedauer, he says in that way. It's all, it's, it also, it's all in Italian, which I don't really speak. Anyway, so he um, composed the piece for him, uh, and then they fall out over some strange thing. They get mad. He, they get mad at each other about something. Beethoven takes his name off the piece. So how's he going to get it performed? He doesn't really know. So he thinks, well, now Bridge Tower's out of the thing. I think, who's another famous violin player who would, could play this piece? He settles upon a guy, a French guy named Rodolphe Kreutzer. He says, you know, says, well, Kreutzer. So he goes to Kreutzer. He tries to get Kreutzer to play the piece. Kreutzer, Berlioz writes in his memoirs that Kreutzer said, I'm never playing this piece. Beethoven's music is incomprehensible. I, I hate it, and I'm never playing it. He never did play it. <laughs> Despite the fact that it is generally called the Kreutzer Sonata, <laughs> never played. Never played so it. So he never played it. So how did it get premiered? Well, maybe you know about jazz at Massey Hall. This is a great record. It probably probably is one of those I see new conception of jazz. One of the jazz at Massey Hall. This is a famous record with I think it's Charles Mingus, Max Roach, Miles Davis, maybe uh, Charlie Parker. Uh, I don't know how else. Maybe yes, other way. Anyway, so these guys are arguing backstage like mad about this or that. They all hate each other, you know. And, um, and then they go on stage and play this amazing concert, you know. Or if I go to my own experience, I remember that I was playing with Misha Mengelberg and Steve Lacey, and they were mad at each other about something. And so I go, and so 10 minutes before the set, I said, what do you want to play? And Misha says, ask Steve what he wants to play. <laughs> so I go to Steve, he says, ask Misha what he wants to play. So I said, well, how about if I decide what we play? No, 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 no. 
no, no, we, we'll do it, no problem. So they had to be threatened. And in any event, um, so that's what happened. So Bridge Tower and uh, Beethoven premiered the piece. So they're hating each other, but they went up and played the crap out of the piece. It was fantastic. So, but the point I'm making here, this long-winded uh, story, is that 100 years later, the idea, this shouldn't, it shouldn't have been a surprise when people like Roland Hayes or, um, or uh, uh, Marian An Anderson come to Germany singing German leader and sounding like Germans. That shouldn't have been a surprise, right? But it was a huge surprise. What happened in the interim to make that a surprise? Blackface minstrelsy came in in the interim. So this huge sort of contrary image of what blackness was about. And it may have been a factor in the absence of blackness from classical music as well, the idea of blackface minstrelsy being the dominant mode of, of how uh, blackness was considered in culture. So that suddenly all that, that erases all the Bridge Tower stuff, all the stuff from earlier in the 12th century with, with black German trumpeters, all that stuff gets erased mm -hmm. in favor of this one image. So subjectivity gets erased along with it. So, that's, so we already have these histories already present. So it's not something we have to create. They're already there. So you can recover them. Now, in terms of these Norwegian composers of today, um, I think people should do what they want. But, but you shouldn't expect not to be challenged. <laughs> Okay. You should. Caveat. So, and that's when it comes down to what? It, what? What is your motivation? What is your? Um, if you just adopt these things without any kind of understanding of where they come from or your implication in it, well, sure, it's just like you're just uh, grabbing things and making pastiches, and that's going to be pretty crappy music anyway. So, you know. But if, but if you're coming into it with a deep understanding of how this music can transform you, can transform your culture, at a certain point, that's going to be persuasive to thinking people. You know, and now you can always have people who we talked about. I think the the Julius Eastman incident in Canada, which um, I was horrified to find. Mary Jane Leach, my uh, should we just my, say if you don't, Julius Eastman is an yeah. uh, uh, eminent uh, African American minimalist composer. Well, who, he wasn't eminent when he died, but he's eminent. No, he's now. eminent now, right? Yeah, <laughs> but that, now. that being a point. I mean, they found you know they the Mary Jane Leach basically when he died, he died homeless and penniless and um, in ways that recall like the jazz experience, although Julius was not a jazz musician. So, but in any event, during his time, he was greatly revered, lionized, respected by a small group of people in the avant-garde downtown scene in New York City, which I was a part of, and he was a little older than me. But um, also he, he yeah. performed in, didn't he perform in Harrison Bertwistle's? Oh, uh, no, was the Peter famous Maxwell record is, is Eight Songs from Mad King, eight Peter Maxwell Davis. Yeah. He, he did right. such a great job that for years afterwards he died, people were still trying to find gay black males with a five-octave range to play that part. <laughs> so I got introduced to several of them in London. So here's our latest, you know. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, so I, don't, I can name some of the names, but I won't, but they are fantastic singers, obviously. But um, so Julius, uh, he died... But Mary Jane Leach, who knew his music well, basically rescued his music for literally from the dumpsters and found examples of it and, and did all his research and found all these things. And, you know, he named his pieces like, you know, very provocative names like, you know, like that are like really like 
what would you call them, schimpfwörter, I guess, you know, like, like evil, nasty words about black people, you know. So, but they were also very much a part of black folklore, too, these, these nasty words that you often hear all the time on rap records and stuff, but they didn't have any rap records when he started. So in any event, um, so Mary Jane Leach used one of these words, and she, to just naming the title of the piece, and she's white, you know, and there's this huge hue and cry about that, and it really upset me, because I was thinking, if you people didn't know anything about Julius Eastman before she brought it along, you know, and who do you think you are? I, I mean, like, uh, she hadn't brought this music in, you, you know, and now you're the defenders of it, give me a break, you didn't care about the guy, right? <laughs> so, I mean, at some point, we have to be reasonable about what constitutes that we have to we have to be a little bit more reasonable, a little bit more understanding. But that's just a that's just my complaint that I want to get off my chest in a semi-public way. That uh, at some point, uh, you know, you have to know, you know, you have to know when to do these things. Certainly, but you have to know also who's doing it and who has standing and who really doesn't. You know, and you know, have to think about it. Mary Jane Leach was she trying to be offensive to people? I don't think so. She brought the guy's music from the brink, from obscurity to the current prominence, which I'm sure he feel very ironic about. I can, I can hear him now. <laughs> George, we talked about this, we talked about Razor, we've talked about Creolite. Um, I want to draw on something that you've written um, about the AACM. Because mm. we started off talking about like defining composition, maybe in, in opposition to improvisation and these things. But you, you wrote, when you, were, you wrote on the AACM and who got to speak, you said that it, it seems fitting that in the wake of the radical physical and even mental silencings of, silencing of slavery, as distinct from, say, an aestheticized silence of four minutes or so. Uh, African-Americans developed an array of musical practices that encouraged all to speak. Yeah. Write that to you. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Good. Um, and I just wondered, in this idea, as we, as we look at what, are, what the different kind of paths yeah, so. and identities we can... Uh, I, I, so I heard a dinging sound. Yeah. I don't no, think, please go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> but as as we look at those, is there also like a structural reimagining of of access or, or of absence? You say here that that AACM created new ways to have different voices that had been silenced. Was that to make mm -hmm. everybody a formal composer, or was it to say there is another way of being that can be as valid as composing? from the kind of white-dominated Western classical mode of identification as a composer? Well, you know, some people did want to just write music like other people they knew. You know, in the ACM school, you'd be there as a young person uh, sitting there. I was 19 years old, and, you know, Muhal or Abrams would bring in an Elliott Carter score or whatever, and you'd look at that, just like everything else. So some people did want to do that. You know, other people wanted to have a, more, a, a different kind of practice, a more hybrid practice. The point was mobility. You got, to, you got to do whatever it is you felt you wanted to do. And it was an odd thing about the AACM because no one ever told you your work was bad. You know, uh, you know, I'm used to academia where at some point you have to like uh, be, quote, honest and tell people the truth about their work, you know. And, and what was in the AACM, people already felt you already knew the truth about your work. And so the whole idea was you find out for yourself and you make your own corrections and you figure out what you wanted to do. You didn't have to have someone telling you, well, here's what you need to do, or whatever. And that's also not only different from the world of, 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 of academia, of musical academia, but it's also different from the earlier generation of bebop. 
in which, you know, the what's the famous image on the film of a bird where, um, uh, with the Clint Eastwood, where Charlie Parker is not playing too well, he's quite inexperienced, you know, and then somebody takes their symbol off and, you know, and they throw it on the t on the floor, and you stop the guy, and so on, and these kinds of things. You and you hear that a lot. It was a sort of a social Darwinist mode of address, which is celebrated by an earlier generation of, of black writers, like like say Ralph Ellison even. And uh, but the later generations, the people who came up under that, the Muhal Richard Abramses and so on, were dismantling that in favor of more cooperative ways of thinking about musical creation. And so what that meant was improvisation, composition, they were doing their own hybrids of it, but that was also happening on the so-called classical side. If there, in other words, there shouldn't have been a so-called classical side, a so-called jazz side. See, there should have been more interpenetration of these, but you have to think about the fact that music exists within culture, and if culture is rent with these divisions, you're going to have that happening in music too. So at the same time, you've got people like uh, like the experimental band, you've got Larry Austin and Lucas Foss and these kinds of people doing it on their end. And so, and each of them are kind of looking at the other, but various kinds of social structures are keeping them apart. So, mm -hmm. and so part of the issue is to, for them, for the society to conceive of itself as being some, a place where those kind of mixtures can happen and be accepted and so people can sort of learn from each other. Uh, in the in the absence of that, certainly the ideal for the AACM, in my view, uh, Muha would call it individualism, which is everybody does what they want. You know, you, we're not telling people what to do or how to do it. And in my sense was mobility, which is that people should be able to investigate different modes or get involved in different fields. And there are, there are, there are a lot of supposed restrictions like, uh, in jazz, they hated electronics, and so everybody was like anti-electronics. So if you did electronics, people would get mad at you, or they they'd say, "Well, what happens when they turn off the power?" or anything like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so remember, Miles Davis was hated for this, Eddie Harris, and all that. All those people, you know. So, or you know, my early work as well, you know, never got any support from the jazzers for that, and so. When you're working with computer music, nobody liked it. No, I mean, on that field, okay. on that side. So, so the thing was, it really didn't matter because we were from the ACM. We didn't care what people thought. It was all about mobility anyway. So you did what you wanted to do. So nobody in the ACM said, "Oh, computers," you know, because we didn't consider ourselves to be a part of that world in quite the same way. We, you know, we could take from it and use it and have it be a part of the network, but not the complete network. So I found it odd. For example, and I, this is in the book uh, that I wrote in 2008. Uh, based on interviews, not interviews, but based on, they taped all the early meetings. And, and so I heard a lot of the tapes. They audio taped the meetings, 1965. And some of the, the tapes were still playable in, in 1990s, and so I heard these tapes. And uh, I had read in virtually every book about the ASM that had ever been written or every article that the ASM was formed in order to revise or update or make a new kind of jazz. So I read that. But it's funny, that sort of like um, didn't comport with what my experience had been, which was nobody ever talked about that. So 
Nobody ever talked about that. And so basically I was wondering, well, where did this come from? And it seems to have come pretty much from the minds of the writers. Uh, because in listening to the tapes, nobody ever mentions jazz or making new kinds of jazz. They're talking about freedom. They're talking about subjectivity. They're talking about mobility. They're trying to get out of the situation they're in. They're talking about how the power of, the power of music to free them from the current social and political and cultural situations that also affect what they are allowed to do musically. And so all that comes into it. And you know, you might, you know, I, I listened for two, four hours, six hours, you know, nobody said jazz at all. <laughs> and it was because they were trying to avoid it or they said, well, you know, or the other thing was that creative music was supposed to be a synonym for jazz. Well, why make a synonym? I mean, like if you, they could have called it the AAJM, Associates with vast with jazz musicians. There was no reason not to do that, right? But why didn't they do it? It's an obvious question, you know. Where, what, is, what do words mean, and uh, why use them? And the idea is revision of the discourse, naming yourself. All these people decided to name themselves to make new names for themselves. Why not make a new name for their music as well that reflected reflected who they were? You know, that was pretty obvious. If you get to name yourself, that's one of the prime, that's one of the prime aspects of being a subject is the right and the, to name yourself. So when, they, so when people try to change the name around or to, or to reduce the mobility of the name or to create, create uh, uh, spurious synonyms for it, then that's an attack on the subjectivity of the people who are doing the name. Mm. So that's why subjectivity is always contested, particularly with people who are not majoritarian in any way. It doesn't have to be about color or ethnicity. It can be religion. It can be many different things, you know. And so we loop back then to the, say, the concert we heard last night, the Bergen Philharmonic, Grieg's Orchestra, the Classical Music Project. Actually, what we need to look at is is maybe to redefine the idea of excellence or who can have access to the resources to create, because the symphony orchestra is a, is a project where excellence has been defined by who had access to that resource. Hmm. Would you say? I wonder about that. First of all, they played great. <laughs> they did. So, I, so excellence, I'd say, was synonymous with this band. They, they were fantastic. They played very difficult music. I mean, not only the, not only the, the, the Ravel, but also the two pieces by the, the younger composers with real skill, panache, excellence, really finely, finely done, fantastic. So I don't think we need to redefine excellence because excellence is one of those things that is elastic in its definition from the beginning, you know? Many of the things that we think of as being, oh, there's no skill, there's no craft, there's no, in this, pretty soon we say, oh yeah, today we sort of see where the craft lies. And so what we need is actually just more debate. And maybe excellence isn't the idea. Maybe it's some, this singular idea of excellence. Maybe that's going away. I mean, the second piece in particular, the second new music piece in particular, the one with the, or the first one for that matter, with the, with the saxophone player, you so know. Maris Nesset was the first one, yeah. Teresa B. Ulvo, the second. I mean, yeah. a previous generation, what, saxophone guy playing like improvised music up there? Hey, there's no excellence there, you know. So already excellence has been already redefined mm -hmm. in order to take account of changing situations in the culture, which I thought was incredible. And the second piece with repair piano, kind of similar things. So, so for me, that ship has already sailed. People, excellence is already part of the interregnum. Okay. You know, <laughs> we're all at sea, and uh, we've got to we've got to keep swimming, treading water, 
being good sailors, whatever it works. I mean, he, the thing about Toby is, it seemed everyone everyone was at sea had a boat. <laughs> so it was just tossed out there, you know. <laughs> Luckily, if we have a life jacket, you know. <laughs> I'd like to open up to the audience. Should we do that? Sure. You take some questions. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a microphone, so if anyone would like to. So I was like, subjectivity and mobility, they're sticking with me as things that we, we yeah. can. Yeah. But uh, anyone want, got anything they want to ask George? Come on. It's okay. The mic's right Daniel, there. You're Daniel, leaning Daniel, out. The mic's so right there. You like, no, you just <laughs> we can discuss it again if you like. Might get a different yeah. answer. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so yesterday uh, we talked about, for instance, um, aspects of it, your percussion piece, uh, aspects of uh, of various theoretical uh, concepts, like from Kofi Agau, that respond to your piece. How do you see that generally in terms because? For instance, uh, the students at the Grieg Academy, they actually read the same texts, their influence, we, we actually studied the same music. How mm -hmm. do you see that as becoming part of this Creole music culture internationally? Can you tell those of us who weren't there what oh, the text yeah. was? Uh, yeah. Which text do you mean? The Kofi Agau text? Kofi Agau, Kofi Agau. Yeah. Uh, yes. African yes. rhythm. Yes, African rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. And his account of yeah. the origins of, he calls it dancing and drumming. That's the chapter I'm thinking about in particular. And uh, there's, a, there's a sort of an origin narrative there about the relationship and physicality and sound. And it's much more complicated than we can go into, but it's brilliantly argued. It's a great book. And, um, and uh, boy, uh, after, uh, you know, I, we have to talk about Kofi. There's a cool story about him, one I'm not going to tell you about, but <laughs> amazing guy. Anyway, brilliant theorist. Uh, um, and I, but I'll tell you about North Star Boogaloo. North Star Boogaloo is a work for percussion and electronics. By, which is, by me, which is based on hip hop, more or less. You know, there's, I was spending a lot of time listening to, you know, Ice Cube, you know, America's Most Wanted and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I can still, you know, if they start playing the track, I can rap right along with it and stuff like that, you know. Ooh. So <laughs> you don't want to hear I that. Now I wish we had that. No, right, you yeah. don't want to hear that. Well, I, could, I have it right here if you want to hear it. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but I was listening to a lot of that, and so I was making beats and trying to figure out how to do this. But you know, quickly discovering a piece written for a classical percussionist, Stephen Schick. And so what you find out first is that subjectivity of classical music is written on the body. Uh, in other words, the, the, the ability to perform that music, just with the Bergen Symphony Orchestra. You know, you can think, here's an example, okay. Um, I played in the Count Basie Orchestra about 40, about the same, the last time, about the same time, last time I was here, 1977. Right, which is with Carla Blay. The year before right. that, I played with Count Basie, so that was 44 years ago or whatever. Um, in any event, um, uh, they, uh, there's no, at least the scores I got, there are no dynamics on the music. You know, there's a bass clef. There's no, hardly any accents. There's no tempo on it, you know. It could be like autograph uh, version of uh, Bach cello suite, you know, the originals, no tempo no notation other than just the notes, that's it. So how do you find out what to play? Well, the culture tells you how to play it. 
So, and tradition, oral tradition tells you how to do it. So by the time you get there, they strike up the band, and you say, ah, oh, here's how it works. Plus, if you played in those kinds of bands before, you see that music, you know what's likely to happen. You have a pro-tension about what's likely to happen there. Um, so, so that's a part of, that's a, part of what's written on the music, what's, what's not written, but which is encoded in the body. And so there are these people who can code switch, people who can do both, people who can do many different kinds of music. They can switch, in a sense, they can come out of many different bodily or mental bodily regimes as to what they're going to be doing and how they can do it. So this piece is about hip hop, and it was, the idea was to make Stephen Schick a kind of a percussion rapper, and to also have a, a, a sample rapper, which is a virtual version of Quincy Troop, the author of the poem, which was the text. So if I'm looking at that in terms, if I'm looking at that in terms of what we're talking about, the creolity or creolization, it seems clear to me that Unlike the previous eras in, like, say, relationship between classical music and other forms, you have the former jazz musicians, then you've got the classical musicians who are more into rock, like, you know, like uh, David Lang and so on. But there haven't been, any, haven't been too many hip-hop people who took from that. I mean, maybe you can think of a few. I haven't thought of that many. So this is an early piece in that way, or is bringing hip-hop into the orbit of classical music. So in that sense, we're bringing those discourses in, in the same way as Julius Eastman's titles brought blackness into classical music as something and put it on the musical table. So that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, new forms of subjectivity coming into the mix that have to be reckoned with and expanding the definition and the identity of the music and expanding its diasporan reach. Uh, so that's, I think it's, it's an example but it comes, let's say, in 1996, which is quite a few years before this stuff I'm talking about now, which is a fairly recent vintage, like the last. Uh, I first gave this creolization talk at Don Ashton in 2017, so it's, I'm still working on it. You know. <laughs> and yes. how did Stephen Schick do with the embodiment of, because presumably you talk about this embodied practice, how did he get to embody what was not culturally his? Well, he wrote an essay about it, uh, and he wrote it. He, he has a book called *The Percussionist Art*, and he has a long disquisition on this piece. And he talked about it. He felt a bit distanced from it in some ways, as being like an imposter. That's what he wrote, as if he was sitting there, Ward Cleaver in a pickup game of basketball. He said, at first, but then I said, we talked about it later because. Because that made me feel sad in a way, because I thought, well, the idea was that he didn't have to become a rapper. You know, he's a, he's, he could play any music. You know, he didn't have to be personally identified with it. In other words, I, I, used, to teach, I used to teach jazz class at UCSD, uh, University of California, San Diego. And I was talking about something with a bunch of people, and I saw these young faces fall. And I was wondering, I said, what's the matter here? Oh, I see. You think you have to be black to do this. No. Then, <laughs> so that's where I think he, you know, his initial musings about it, which were very carefully, uh, carefully considered. I think we both began to realize that we were experimenting with identities in ways that we neither of us was really that familiar with, and so we had to sort of think about it in, in ways that uh, he he already had. In other words, I wasn't asking him to be a hip hop. Person. I was asking him to do what Stephen Schick does, which is like play the most complex and difficult percussion music ever mm. in the way that he does, you know? And I, 
And of course, he had just been playing Brian Fernio's Bone Alphabet, which is a lot more complicated than my piece. You know? So this is the kind of stuff he does. So I wanted to see if that would work alongside beat making. And it seemed to be okay. You know? no. So there's some sort of possible hybridity, mixtures, curlization right there. And do, do you think the sight of classical music, of notated music, actually gives us this empty container where those we can meet on a neutral space? So Stephen didn't have to be black to play hip-hop percussion in your piece. Well, uh, the, well, you know, the computer played the hip-hop percussion. Okay. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do he that. Had to, he had to play the notated stuff. And a lot of it was also written to sound like, uh, you know, like jazz drumming, you know. Just, just like some of the stuff in Kulak Air was written in that way as well. Right, but at the same time, the Navy band didn't have to be black to perform your piece, right? No, no. But someone had to like put those discourses in there, and they didn't have to be black either. In fact, nobody had to be anything. You just have to be. You, have to, you just have to be able to marshal those musical discourses and to be able to use certain methodologies to bring them to the table. Ethnicity of the person doing it doesn't really matter at all, you know, as far as I can see. Uh, it matters your familiarity with the, with the sonic discourse, and that's really what's important about it. Can we come back to the sound and the listening again? Yeah, to be able to listen is the most important thing. Perhaps about, perhaps, perhaps maybe that's something I could really push more in thinking about this more is the importance of listening mm -hmm. in developing uh, subjects, Creole subjects. That could be something to think about. Well, that was a long way. We get, you got us pretty far with that one question there. Any more? Yeah. <laughs> That's somebody right there. Yeah. I suppose some of the thing you're talking about, there's kind of a little bit of a tension between creolization and appropriation and where that kind of line fits. And maybe for some other people, it's a bit difficult to come down on one side or the other. Hmm. Do you think um, classical music... Uh, higher culture can learn something from other music and other art forms that are out there and do you think that's somewhere where this creolization aspect fits more freely well there's a yeah there's a pretty long history of it i, I mean um i'm fond of of uh doing you know I, I sometimes do 20th century music for undergraduates and there's the wc nuage which is one of the, which is a beautiful piece and you start to see it's all based on a, on a Javanese balloon, right? It's all based on that string. It's just like if you were just playing it right there, and you'd be playing the balloon right there. It's all based on that. So suddenly we're starting to see that those kinds of borrowings have already been present. And it's not just Debussy. It's Delib. A lot of people are doing that in France. A lot of people are doing it in Germany. I mean, if we're going to fast forward, Stockhausen is always talking about having to know, you know as much as you can about world music, you know, Know, telemusic, uh, things like this. I mean, it, it, it's all over the place. Um, so we're not borrowing mixtures are constant. And it's the ideal of purity, which is the problem. In other words, the idea that somehow you do all this borrowing and do that mixture, all that gets forgotten in favor of a, of a, of a spurious notion of purity. And so if we recognize, first of all, what's already happening and what has already happened, I mean, Beethoven's Turkish music, right? it's going on and on. So we don't have to worry about that. What we need to get rid of are the purity police. 
When these people start, just, you just feel for your wallet, whenever, whenever somebody starts talking about the purity of classical music, just make sure your wallet is still there. And, <laughs> and so at that point, you can sort of say then, well, what is this purity you're talking about? Because right away, we're talking about genre purity, and then we're into racial purity, and we're into all kinds of purities that don't really work. So impurity is what we want, and what we're striving for, that's, that's our condition. Um, and if we're in that condition, and that condition is bound up with indeterminacy, and it's also bound up with real life improvisations of, as a species. So if we're thinking of it in those lines, then so-called high culture it also becomes impure. Um, it's, these are things that have already happened in a way. But uh, and I would like to... Um, you know, there's so many aspects of, when we think about classical music, there's so many aspects of it that um, I prefer an investment-based infrastructural analysis of how we think about classical music. If we look at the ways in which certain kinds of infrastructure are assumed as a part of the classical music experience, which don't exist in other musics. Or, although it's not to say that classical music is necessarily the highest infrastructure music. That would be the rock bands and so on that have these giant billboards and 50,000 people and 18 zillion watt amplifiers and all that. We tried. Yeah, you tried? Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, well, no you know. billboard. <laughs> all those things. So it's not the highest infrastructure, but in terms of there is something there to deal with in terms of that the infrastructure that supports that. One thing we haven't talked about, and this brings up something that we might want to consider, um, all these new citizens you guys have here, what happens when they go into the music schools and start studying composition? What are they likely to create? What's going to be their experience as, quote, classical musicians? You know, um, what is that going to be? You know, these people who didn't, weren't born here, came from a different ethno-racial culture, or were perhaps born here, but born of parents who came from that the different culture, a different tradition, different, quote, ethno-racial features. What happens to these people when they go into the music schools? Do they transform the schools? Do they transform the institutions? Do the institutions transform them? Both. Both happen. So, and which is, once again, it's a creation of a new kind of classical music subject. You know, what happens when they graduate from the conservatories, you know? Um, so, and, and start not playing, not just playing in orchestras, but writing orchestral music. Um, this is going to be the future that I think we're going to need to address and, uh, and welcome, and, and welcome. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's no reason not to welcome that. That's a long way to response to your question, but that's where it went, sorry. It's quite a slow process, that. I mean, if it's generation by generation of, of new faces and new voices within the institutions, and institutions themselves can be slow to change. Um, I well, some of you have more time than I do. <laughs> but is there, I mean, is there anything that we can do to, to speed up that change or I mean you know you're doing projects that Afro-modernism is, is a curatorial decision to to have a, a program only of Afro-modernist composers do you think we could as festivals or as, as a kind of music community say okay 
This is too slow. Uh, or is it, is it, does it have to well, be natural? Well, you know, um, I'm going to use an analogy from the computer programming world now, but there's two basic sort of setups. And a lot of these computers now have uh, sort of multiple cores, which means they don't do things one at a time. They do things in parallel. So several things are happening together. So let's say you have like one festival per year doing these things. Let's say you have 100 instead. And they're all doing it at the same time, acting in concert, acting in parallel. That's how you get things to happen faster, when everybody starts doing it. Maybe it's one person, then it's one festival or one or two, then the next year it's maybe five or 10. And pretty soon it becomes something that's going on uh, more frequently, I think, in the visual art world, where it's assumed that we don't look at single, the single metropole you know, since uh, I think the classic example was used in my, my article, anyway, with Okui and Wazor, the uh, late uh, curator, who, uh, who was the curator of Documenta, who broke that open to the world. Uh, and so looking at art from all over the world, you know, and seeing how, how different models of contemporary art or visual art were active in different parts of the world. So that's certainly possible in, in, in music too. I was we were talking about Akin Uba and African pianism, which was way back in the 70s. So uh, there's, African pianism has a lot of, 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 of consanguinity with, um, uh, with minimalism in many ways. So, uh, but it's an African-based kind of movement, um, which I don't think really deals more with African modes of, a way to embed Africanisms into classical music. Um, so, but I think acting in concert and acting in parallel is how to speed things up. Get everybody, get all your curator buddies to go out there and start thinking about these things, and then pretty soon change comes much more rapidly than just with a couple of people per year. You know, I mean, whole festivals can do it, individuals can do it, uh, orchestras, can do, orchestras it. can do it. They start thinking, they become aware of these as possibilities, you know. Uh, uh, academic institutions can do it. Uh, Columbia University, after, after like a lot of, in my, in my composition area, which I'm now sort of running, after a number of years of sort of fighting it out with different people, including some of my own colleagues, we managed to get, I mean, they were very proud when they, you know, they stuck out their chest, these old guys. Is, is, we got we have one woman admitted per year, you know. <laughs> you know how's that going to do anything? So I come and I say, look, if you want to do this fast, we have to do it in parallel. We have to admit all female classes for the next four years, and then we'll be okay. So you can't do that. Why all not? female classes for four years, right? Okay. Yeah, I say, if you yeah. do that for four years, that's going to be it. And then we will, and a lot of problems we're having right now with diversity will disappear. A lot of them will just disappear in terms of trying to make sure that everyone gets a great experience, that people are, that people are selected for opportunities, and that and it's not always men that are selected for the opportunities, and that provide a model for other institutions as to how, uh, how uh, programs can be diverse in composition, mm -hmm. and, uh, and for the field itself. In other words, so we don't see this, you know, the 7% rule, so that tends to disappear. If, if you've got, like, suddenly, like, if every institution is graduating, half, half the people graduating are women, that totally changes the field, you know? But it's not happening now. So, you get, so someone has to do it. So you have to take a radical step. So, and it's not that radical because it's not like you have to, they said, well, what about excellence? And I said, well, at a certain point, you have excellence. And then you have to start thinking about other kinds of goals. 
you know, which also contribute to other kinds of excellence, which goes back to your point in a way about what constitutes excellence. Is it just the so-called best composers? Well, I don't know who those people are, the so-called best composers. I mean, I, you know, but I do know that the program's a lot more excellence now that it's 50% women and a fair number of uh, people of non-white origin. Uh, it's a lot better program in terms of what happens around the table, the kinds of discourses and ideas that are, that are put into the mix, the kinds of experiences we all have. So I'm very happy about it. But um, it took a while to convince people. Actually, we had to have a couple of retirements for it to happen. But um, <laughs> you know, which is why I'm saying I'm trying to get as much as I can now because I'm on my way out myself. So I can't <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, uh, you can't hang out that long. You know, you got to do what you can and get the hell out and let somebody else do it. But if but if you but if you can sort of figure out, I want to leave it in a in a nice place. So if they screw it up, they can't blame me. You know. <laughs> That's legacy. Uh, <laughs> and are there any other questions? Or is there, I don't know if we even have time for more questions. Yeah, so we can take. Yeah. Can take more. Yes. Oh, here's. Thank you very much. I would like to know a little bit more about the list that you presented. Uh, you talked about that you presented during um, Darmstadt. I mean. I was there, so I know a lot about it, but it was very interesting, and I, would wa I wanted to know what pieces did you select, and why, and who, and which uh, time sphere, and also what happened with this list now. Is it available for other people, for curators that are maybe searching for Afro-diasporic composers for their own programmation? Well, it's an odd thing, uh, because um, it wasn't that hard to do, um, anyone could have done it. Uh, it wasn't like the information was Sam is that or not public. It was. Um, I made the list, as I said before, and I made the list in full view of, I mean, you were one of the people that collaborated on the, on the defragmentation project, a major part of it. And when she tell you, you know, she was, I mean, Katja Helms, a major part of this project. Um, so, the first thing I thought about was the aesthetics of Darmstadt. What, in my judgment, based on my knowledge of the field, would have been the kind of music that would have been at least talked about at Darmstadt. Now, there are lots of people, like I said, there's a strong tradition of tonal music. And a lot of that would not have been acceptable. So I looked for people who are doing things which are compatible with what I thought were a certain kind of aesthetic mainstream, if you will, that was in terms of methodologies, as well as in terms of, of sonic aesthetics. So those were two things. The third thing was uh, gender. It couldn't be all you know, males. That was, of course, harder to do, because even among the Afro-diasporic crowd, a lot of the gender exclusions were still present. So you know, this is so that had to be sort of looked at as well. Um, also, age being very important. Uh, some people who were going to have a mix of ages, and um, so those were the ideas. Now, in terms of the availability of it, first of all, I found that someone xeroxed it or took a picture of it, put it on Facebook. So since I'm not on Facebook, I have no idea what they do there. Uh, so, so um, probably best. Yeah. So um, yeah. You know, some people I know are on it, but but anyway. Um, so it could it could certainly be you know put out there in some way. For one thing, the article that you 
helped to edit uh, and on curating has the list and a footnote. So if you go to that, what's it called, on-curating.org? You can find it very easily. Now I'm wondering, does it need further dissemination? Perhaps, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a disseminator, really. I'm not an advertiser, but maybe we could talk about ways in which this should be done. But, you know, this was a small act of curation, as I called it. Mm. So there could be other small acts of curation by other curators. Uh, this is something I think which has uh, been... The first time I started thinking about these things was in 1980 when I took over the uh, curation of The Kitchen, which is the center for uh, new music, uh, downtown new music in New York City. So, um, and people were so afraid of what I might do that they put it in the New York Times. <laughs> There's no reason for the, curator, the curatorship of The Kitchen to be in the New York Times. And so I noticed that the whole, the whole, the whole, the way which was presented was first of all, they put me up there with the director of the kitchen, who was the wonderful white woman from originally Welsh, Mary MacArthur, Mary Griffin. So the iconography of that was, he's there, he's directing, but he's under white control, so don't worry about it. Um, and beyond that, um, there was also the, um, the, um, the notion that of people were thinking, well, What's he going to do? Is it going to be like all jazz now? Because he has a strong paper trail in jazz, and we don't want that. Because, And even in the community, people were saying, well, wh why do we have to have this person? After all, that's, they, have, they, they have their own spaces. And so the question was, well, who is this they we're talking about? Which means, who is this we we're talking about? And am I a we or a they? Tell me. <laughs> you know? So maybe I'm both. I can be a we or a they, depending upon what's needed by a certain mode of dominance. Uh, so that, that kind of curatorial thing. And then when I looked uh, like 30 years later at what I had done, I was very happy about it, except the gender part, which was very poor. So I thought, OK, now I'm going to learn something. So there we are. So that's, that's, that's why I think we need more than just a few people doing it. People need to do for themselves, make their own mistakes, not depend upon George's list of approved people, but develop their own, <laughs> but their own lists and, get, and get, just get it out there for themselves and create. You know? and, I mean, there are lots of resources. I mean, there's female pressure and AGF is... There's lots of networks for, 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 for women and non-binary people in making music and composing, and maybe George's approved list of non-whiteness. Yeah, we don't, it's just one among many. And maybe many, there are other resources. Know? There's but, a lot of yeah. others, yeah. Just but it does take work. Right? I mean, this, this shifting this, this place, these easy assumptions about who the we is and who the they is will require labor on everyone's part. And, you know, and, 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 and creating new communities that think about these things. Mm. It's not maybe individual labor is only a part of it. Maybe there is a community. And I felt that by bringing this list out there and having, for example, the very salutary taking up of this list by the Ensemble Modern people to make the conference and, and uh, seeing that other groups, South Bank and London, even the proms at this point, are thinking about these things in their own way. And there's a lot of people, I think, in the US who are also thinking about these. We're starting to see, you know, New Music USA or others, um, we're starting to see that there's a movement to reconsider and redevelop 
uh, to reconfigure the field in a very different way to, to along, uh, so that new, new kinds of values come out of the process and new, and new understandings of who we are. Who we all are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any others, anybody? Yes, we got time for one more if there's anything burning. Oh, there's been too, too annoying. So, so in this, following up on this, um, so looking at who we are in terms of uh, an expanded Creole in Scandinavia and in Europe, mm. how do you, how, what could you imagine in terms of these people who are moving, immigration, etc.? How, how can that actually um, develop uh, be strengthened in, in this way? Well, well, I have a very interesting graduate student. Uh, her name is Jane Forner, and she's, um, she's about to get her doctorate. And she's writing about uh, opera. And opera is becoming one of the places where these things are being explored. Um, my own opera is one, but there are lots of others. And she's writing about uh, uh, She's writing about, actually, one of her chapters is about a Norwegian composer, Cecilia Ura, and her Adam and Eve opera, which is a very uh, pointed examination of the role of religion versus the state. Uh, and it it's, it's brings up a lot of challenging issues. But she also is writing about um, uh, Monim Adwan, a Palestinian composer who is working in France. Or I could think about Zaid Jabri, the Syrian composer. Or I could think about, there are going to be, these kinds of people are going to become more frequently seen. Uh, people who have grown up in these areas, have grown up in Europe, have grown up in Scandinavia. The Afro-German community will probably produce a number of these people, for example. I don't know if there's a similar thing like that here. but. Uh, certainly in terms of, let's say, Afro-German musicologists, I could think of Harold Kisidu as being one. And so I'm, I, for myself, I'm trying actively to promote these people and find them. I'm looking around, trolling for converts. Who can I get to sort of uh, I, I commissioned, things? I commissioned Saeed Jabri. You did? In 2017, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Well, he's so, in New York now. He's yeah, a, I know. He's a fellow of Columbia. It's I great. Know. He's been, that, thanks for doing that, it's incredible. So these kinds of people, you know, that's what, see, that's what we need. So now we have like two people at least who are, or maybe more. This is acting in concert, mm -hmm. acting in parallel with the same kinds of ideas. So you see where it's going. Um, and there are gonna be more people. You're gonna see that it's going to come out. We have to be encouraging about it. Maybe we have to do things like, I mean, I understand like, you know, my, Dad really didn't, mom really didn't want me to do, go into music. How are you going to make a living and all that kind of thing? You know, I, think, I mean, I, I took my son to the, to the allergist in California and, and uh, I met the chief allergist and she, she said, well, I see you're a professor. I says, what do you do? She says, well, I'm, a I, I'm in music. Said, you're in music? Let me talk to you. He says, look, can you talk to my son? I <laughs> said, what? We're Vietnamese, we're scientists. We, we, can you make a living in music? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> so, you know, so I said, well, who's his teacher? It happened to be someone who's 
I taught. So he said, okay, that's good. <laughs> You're in good shape. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but, it, it. But it's like that all the time. It's like a lot of people don't want that, and that may be an issue in this country or in this region as well, where certain people, their parents might not think of them as necessarily becoming, that wouldn't be something they'd want their kids to go into. So, and that might take some work to see that that's a real viable option for people. Uh, for any number of reasons, the ethnic reasons, just the career reasons, the economic reasons, uh, it's all sort of sitting there uh, available for scrutiny. But that's what I see in a nutshell. Uh, I see us, you have to grow them. You have to grow them from the soil. You know, families have to produce them. Uh, institutions have to produce them. Uh, the culture has to produce them from its own resources. And uh, you have to see that it's an important thing to produce these people because they're likely to um, be the people that save us. I think that's probably a good way to leave it. I'll leave us with a Stuart Hall quote that I stole from you. Uh, Those who do not see themselves reflected in national heritage are excluded from it. So it's on, we need to grow the new voices and we also need to reflect them in the way we define ourselves. And maybe the we and the they stop getting so separated. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see you there. Please thank George. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you to George Lewis and Peter Meanwell for that conversation, to Bergen Public Library for hosting us, and to the whole Boreal team for making the festival happen. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next month for another conversation from the archive. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please go to the podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. That'll help us get the word out to more people about Boreales Samtala. And for those of you who don't know, Samtala means conversation in Norwegian.